0: Welcome to episode two of the five-part Edward Patterson series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. In the last episode, we heard about Mr. Patterson's time in college, how he got involved in the Army Air Corps, and being sent to North Africa in 1942, where he would provide logistical air troop support in the battle against Erwin Rommel. In this episode, Mr. Patterson describes the end of the fighting in North Africa and his transition to the China-Burma-India Theater. In that theater, he would help oversee the transfer of supplies over the Himalayas to China to carry the fight on against the Japanese. So uh, back to
1: North Africa, back to Edward Patterson. Um, uh, the next clip, he's going to talk a little more about uh, his experiences in North Africa.
2: Uh, our organization, the fighter group, was troop support that we'd go out ahead of of the troops that were moving from the west to the east to take over, get, meet Rommel, uh, and they did. And so, our, there were very little combat fighting among the fighter planes. It was all mostly troop support. Uh, the war ended and uh, we moved back, uh, we moved to Tunis. Uh, which is a little point out on the African coast. It's close, I mean, it's, it's a good a departure point for Italy. And that's where we were scheduled to go, to be a fighter base, at a fighter base in Italy.
0: He meant the battle ended. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I was so, like, "What?" Yeah. He lost over a lot. <laughs> yeah, so
1: so the, the the battle for North Africa ended in May. So he timeline. He came. He he Operation Torch started in 1942. English pushed the Germans from the east. We had Operation Torch in November 1942. We pushed him from the west. He talks about his fighter squadron not being involved in too much aerial combat, but in supporting the troops, meaning. The Twelfth Air Force and the fighter wings at that time were doing a lot of tactical airstrikes on on tanks and bridges and and uh, fortifications. Um, so that was that was really a lot of the missions that he was helping support as an adjutant, as an officer, and a general staff of the Twelfth Air Force. And then he mentions um, the end of the war, meaning the end of the battle in North Africa, that occurred in May of 1943. So about five months after he got there. Now intervening. The time he landed in January and then um, the defeat of the German troops, of which 267,000 were taken prisoner in Tunisia, intervening that in February, just a month, month and a half after he he got there, was the first major battle that the Americans would have against an organized German military force, and it was called the Battle of Kasserine Pass, Mm -hmm. And so as the Americans were pushing east towards Tunisia, there was this mountain pass that they were going through. Uh, an experienced army um, probably would have understood the value of recon and knowing that that was a potential pinch point and a trap for an ambush and an attack. But at this point in the war, this is the first battle that we had faced since World War I, mm-hmm. right? And so we were a green army, freshly trained, freshly equipped. And at the Battle of Kasserine past that pinch point, the the German military just shellacked us. And it created, it was actually a good thing. By having our nose bloodied, it forced the U.S. military to recognize a couple of things. One, there were certain military commanders that didn't enforce discipline enough. And they were run out. There's always peacetime uh, leaders and then there's wartime leaders. Well, uh, these uh, peacetime leaders who didn't really train their men the way they needed to be trained for fighting like this were pushed out of the military and they were replaced with people like Bradley and Patton. So this is when the Bradley Patton uh, group would come together and they would fight alongside each other for the rest of the war. And it started at the Battle of Casserine Pass when that general was fired and these two took over.
0: Was it, Patton a full general by then? He was a was he uh, lieutenant general. He, he
1: was a three-star general. He so, was
0: then? No, sorry, he was two-star then. Okay.
1: Yeah, so that would have been a major general. I know he general. ended up a three-star. Yeah, so, so he was yeah. a major general, mm-hmm. and then he became a lieutenant general later. So he's a two-star general. He gets promoted to, to, to be in charge of the, uh, of the entire uh, Operation Torch Landing Forces. It wasn't three days later that General Patton would make an impact. He would gather his forces, take the lessons learned, and then he would ambush the German military. Three days later and repulse them and turn them back. And from that point forward, the Americans were always on the offensive, always on the move, pushing them all the way back to Tunisia.
0: They kept the momentum.
1: The entire time. So it just goes to show... That most of the time when an organization has the problem, it's not the people, it's the leaders, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the bosses. Yeah. So um, just by changing leadership up and he enforced strict discipline, they had completely new training programs, American servicemen uh, started to become much more efficient uh, 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 fighters and they started getting the confidence they needed. Yeah. So cool. so that's, that's where we are right now with that clip. Uh, the next clip is going to talk about the transition into the next uh, phase or the next front that he was going to participate in now that the battle for North Africa was over.
2: While we were waiting for transportation because it, it, uh, it, it took an aircraft carrier to take the planes, And uh, that, Tunis, was that kind of a port where they could uh, put the planes on the carrier. And these were P-40s that uh, were headed to go there. They weren't, we weren't loaded, but there was a a catastrophe in the Mediterranean in which there was a fighter group that was headed to India. Uh, Their carrier was sunk and a lot of disaster and... Battle uh, things that uh, was it sunk by a submarine? Do you know? I think it was both aircraft carrier. I mean, uh, air, uh, air planes and whatnot. All I know is that it was a. It was somewhere, maybe close to the uh, the uh, Gibraltar. they would just gotten into the Mediterranean.
1: Yeah. So. The war in North Africa is over, but the Mediterranean is still a dumpster fire. Italy's still in the war. Germans still have air bases um, in Italy, in Sicily, in Sardinia. You still had the U-boat threat. So it would it wouldn't be until after North Africa, because uh, a fair amount of the German troops in in North Africa actually would be ferried across and make it into Sicily and then Italy. So the next place that the Allies would go would be Sicily in Italy. It wasn't until, really, Italy was invaded, and um, and and uh, the Italian government overthrew Mussolini uh, in late '43, and by end of 1943, the Italians were out of the war. It wasn't until then that the British really had control of the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal. It was still
0: pretty hairy. So I uh, mean, reject. so yeah. he mentions this this group. Being attacked, and there was this this, this uh, you know big loss that they incurred. Yeah, and that this group was heading to India, yep. and they were attacked in the Mediterranean. Were they going through the Suez Canal to get there? Yes, instead of going around the uh, Cape uh, Horn, they were going
1: to go through the Suez Canal to save a significant amount of time, over a sure. month to sure. get sure. there. And so he, he talks about U-boats. We already mentioned earlier in the podcast about the casualties that the U-boats inflicted on us. Well, this is part of that mm. because of the U-boats and the aircraft. There were a lot of supplies that didn't make it to where they needed to go. And so what you're hearing in this clip is Edward and his unit with these fighter groups, instead of going to Sicily and Italy, which is where most of the Americans at this time were going to go to fight, he was going to another place, which we're going to talk about in the next clip. Mm. But what I wanted to also do when I stop here, and we talked about how how horrible the Mediterranean was, was it was also bad on the U-boats. The U-boats didn't come through unscathed. And through my research, and this came, comes from uboat.net, I learned something that was so shocking to me that I had to go to other sources to verify, just to make sure, because I just couldn't believe it. So I'm reading directly from this, this website. It reads, from September 1941 to May of 1944, Germany managed to send 62, it's quite a few, U-boats into the Mediterranean. All of these boats had to navigate the dreaded Straits of Gibraltar, where nine U-boats were sunk while attempting passage and 10 more had to break off their run and go back in the Atlantic because of damages that they incurred in Gibraltar. And here's the part that I was really blown away. No U-boats ever made it back into the Atlantic and all were either sunk in battle or scuttled by their own crews. (laughs) Let Let me reiterate this. What this is saying, and I was able to verify it independently, is every U-boat that the Germans sent into the Mediterranean never came back. And it turns out that there's a lot of reasons for this. One, the Mediterranean is small. It's two, it's shallow. Three, the waters are relatively clear.
0: Mm.
1: And four, I already mentioned it was a hornet's nest. There was planes and ships and submarines and U-boats everywhere, mm-hmm. land-based aircraft. So this idea that as important as the U-boats were to choking off the, uh, the British supplies from America and the North Atlantic, so they valued their U-boat fleet, they knew they needed U-boats in the Mediterranean to help sink tri- trip, uh, troops going through the Suez Canal, but it was a suicide mission. It was a one-way mission, mm-hmm. and it occurred over three years, which means you would have had German uh, uh, sailors and captains. That would have, they would have watched their friends and other U-boats that they trained with go to the Mediterranean and never come back. And then say 1944, after two years of this, you're asked, you know, U-boat 562 is asked to go into the Mediterranean. And up until that point, not a single U-boat has ever come out of the Mediterranean once it came in. It sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. You know, where you go into Mordor and people never come out again. (laughs) You know, I mean, this I I, I I just had a hard time believing that, you know, a, a military force as sophisticated and as well-trained as the Germans would just send these highly trained men into an area, knowing that they'd never come back. And in fact, um, in this same uh, article, Dernitz, who was the uh, uh, head of the U-boat fleet at the time, and the whole military, not the military, but the, the uh, Kriegsmarine, the Navy, yeah. uh, he, he wrote that he was, quote, Durnitz was never too excited about these missions as he considered them to be wasteful to the overall war effort as each boat would be lost to the Atlantic forever. Mm. Now, I, 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 I have no idea. If I were a German U-boat crew in 1944 and I understood what was going on and you would have known, I, I just couldn't imagine you know, the emotions that these men would have felt as they turned the corner to go into gibraltar where so many ships were lost and then knowing that no ship is ever left at any rate i well, i just wanted to stop mm, and share that because sure. i was blown away by that finding
0: when you mentioned 62 mm. were lost that went in and never came back and they never came out not one came back i was like my question popped in my head was how many total u-boats were there during world war ii and quick look here while tony was mm. um, was was filling this in on stuff Um, In the end, I don't know the the exact number that were built, but there were 793 U-boats lost in World War II. Oh, my gosh. So this was a little less than 10% of them here, okay? Um, 28,000 submariners were lost Mm. in the German Navy. That's a 75% casualty rate. I think I read that the highest casualty rate of any service— of any participant during the entire war was the German U-boat. That's flight. correct. That's wow. what this states also. I'm looking at Wikipedia, so we'll take it for what it's worth. But, um, yeah, I, I just was wondering, you know, what percentage of their entire submarine fleet went in there and never came back out. It was probably about 8%, roughly, yeah, know, something like that.
1: that so it, that, That's a good point. I mean, can if, if you're living like that, if you're in a fleet of highly trained men with a high esprit de corps, you know you're important to war effort, but you're incurring casualties beyond anything that's ever experienced anywhere in World War II, can you imagine what the parties would have been like when they made it back home? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it would have been the great
0: debauch. Oh, my. Yeah. I <laughs> mean... <laughs> Talk about living for the day, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, there were subs that were captured. You know, obviously, um, that the the one that's in Chicago mm-hmm. that was captured, and then the the Enigma machine was captured with it. Those guys survived the war. Mm-hmm. There weren't many sub crews that that survived that that surrendered and survived. You know, I mean, everything. So, anyway, that's
2: yeah, amazing.
1: No, that's cool. Thanks for looking it up on a fly, sure. dude. Yeah. Um, So now we're gonna move on to the next clip. And it's going to talk more directly to what he's going to be doing next.
2: The was sunk that had the planes and then there was a lot of of, uh, disaster among the troops. So we were fully manned and ready to go. In fact, we were in winter uniforms at that time. And uh, so we changed and got into our dear old khakis and got on a troop ship, British troop ship, went through the Red Sea and uh, came out at Calcutta, and uh, Calcutta had had uh, uh, some damage, and we were unable to land. We were out in the harbor. We we're out there several days. Uh, we were allowed, at least the officers were allowed, to go into town to visit the bars. Oh, boy. Bars.
1: Bars, Calcutta. They drank back then? Where are these guys going? (laughs) I mean, we're in North Africa, and we're fighting the Germans and the Italians. And and basically what he said earlier in the clip is because of all the disasters, the things that were happening in the Mediterranean, all the sinkings, all the planes being shot down, that units that were supposed to go to the theater he was going to next uh, weren't available anymore, and they are redirected. And so uh, the next clip is going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that occurred on their journey to this next theater.
0: So uh, if I can just interject, so he's actually going from the European theater to, to, a, a, to the Asian or Pacific to, theater. To a, to a different theater, which we're going to talk a lot more about uh, in a couple of clips from now. And you never hear about this happening this early in the war. Yes. A lot of times when you hear about guys going from the European theater to the Pacific theater, it's after VE Day. Yeah, and they're going to the the Pacific Theater through the
1: Suez Canal. Yeah, <laughs> not not via Pearl Harbor or Australia. Yeah. So yeah, you okay. going to a place that a lot of people weren't aware of. We had to go to.
2: Anyway, on our return to come back from on the shore to the boat ship, one of our men, this lady ran up and gave him a baby. Oh. Just and the guy stood there and he took the baby (laughs) so it wouldn't drop and she took off and then we had quite an ado getting rid of that baby to get back on the ship (laughs) but uh, that guy's name was Paul Runkle and we were good friends and poor old Paul uh, we visited, uh, visited here and back and he's from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and we often talked about that (laughs) incident coming out of the bar. (laughs) And I don't think that we were that well stinkled by (laughs) any means because you just didn't do that. But anyway, Paul had a baby and we got going.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, so first thing that popped in my head was – was she giving him his child (laughs) but no it sounds like she was trying to make sure the child survived and was giving it to the American forces this was in Calcutta India extreme poverty I mean
1: there's still extreme poverty there now (laughs) and it was way worse back then yeah and mm-hmm. and and I think that's exactly it. we were laughing about it such a weird story, but there's also a tragedy part of it, which is yeah, yeah. that the people in that area were so poor that this woman is probably her kid was willing to give away her own child with the hopes that it would be better provided for with the U.S. military going to war than staying in their own country at that time.
0: Uh, we've just seen footage very similar to this yes. in recent months, haven't we? We I have. Mean, where you know, with the evacuation from um, Kabul, from Kabul, and and seeing the the woman pass her baby up to an American soldier, uh, just gut wrenching stuff. Yeah, you know that 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 people have to make these choices like that, you know, under those conditions. But yeah, yeah. so it was. Anyway, we
1: just wanted to play that clip because it, I don't know, kind of showcased a little bit of the cultural zeitgeist at the time and and what was going on on his trip to the new theater. So. Next one, he's leaving Calcutta and actually going to his new theater of operations.
2: Uh, they weren't in any hurry. <laughs> anyway, there were wooden seats that we were on and were sleeping in a troop car. car. There wasn't any Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a forty-nine. And, <laughs> and uh, we got to um, Bombay. That was the headquarters for the 10th Air Force. And uh, I had contact back and forth from our little base out at wherever it was outside of Bombay, and uh came into various offices and within the Tenth Air Force,
1: yeah, so he's assigned to the tenth air Force, and uh that was really interesting, so the Tenth Air Force was based out of India, which is why he's talking about going on these uh on these uh, uh, cars that were not Pullman's. A Pullman car was uh, considered a luxury form of travel during World War II. Very much an American thing. An American thing. Beautiful cars, padded seats, you know, you can get a beer and all that stuff. Well, he was saying it wasn't that. As they they, uh, departed Calcutta, uh, they got into uh, troop transport, and they were moving into Bombay, which is where the 10th uh, uh, Air Force was constituted, but... They would actually move north of Bombay to the border, the very northeast corner of India, which was nestled right up against the Himalaya Mountains, the tallest mountain ranges in the world. Right up next to and right across those mountain ranges was China. And right to the east of that mountain range was Burma. And we're going to be talking about China, Burma, India from this point forward, because this is the new theater he's in, the CBI. The CBI stands for China, Burma, India Theater. It's one of the lesser known theaters in World War II. It was ridiculously important. And that's where he's going. In the 10th Air Force, oddly enough, their, their job at this point, this would have been, say, June of 1943, July 1943, wasn't even as a bombing force. It was a uh, fighter force with an air transport wing to move supplies into China. And so we're going to play the next clip, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about why this mission was so important.
0: And and just for present-day geography, Burma is now known as? Myanmar. That's yes, correct. So... Um, I never understood why the countries go through name changes. You well, you know, and Bombay is Mumbai because Bombay was the
1: English perversion of of the Mumbai. actual Indian name of Mumbai. So <laughs> uh, in in doing research uh, for this theater, I'm glad you brought this
0: up, Ryan. We didn't, this is completely spontaneous. I'm glad I knew it was Myanmar, by the way, because if I did, I'd be like, oh no, what, what is it? Um, I would have pronounced it differently and, and incorrectly. So you <laughs> pronounce it a lot more exotically. All that's right. good. I don't know about that. But in doing research for this, it's
1: really interesting because there's two or three different spellings for names. So these guys would tell me about going to Chengdu or whatever. And I would go do a Google search, and it's like, there's no, what's this dude talking about? But there are older place names from the colonial days for a lot of these places that as these um, colonies were broken up, as uh, these different areas of the world became more nationalistic, they started adopting the local nationalistic names spelled and pronounced correctly, but not the way that I'm used to hearing them historically. So, at any rate, this uh, that's another part about doing the research in this area that's really tricky, is the names for some of these have changed several times, like Beijing— was not pronounced Beijing in China during World War II. That was afterwards. But uh-huh. anyway, any rate, right. we're going to move on. The next clip talks a little bit more about his uh, uh, time in the 10th Air Force. And now we all know he's in India as part of the CBI, the China Burma India Theater.
2: And then we went up to a, another base in the middle of India uh, on the uh, east side and... Uh, well, the fighter planes really were in combat there. There wasn't any troops for it. It was the real McCoy. There was uh, offenses against the Japanese. And uh, that's where I got my first lesson of uh, you're losing your friends when these, some of these pilots didn't come home. And then we went up to a town that was just on the edge of the... Uh, hump the himalaya mountains that was the hump and that was where the burma road was and our fighter group uh, participated with general stillwell on the um, uh taking the burma road back from the japanese
1: the burma road was about 700 miles long it was treacherous and torturous And the Japanese realized that if they were going to, uh, they could never win the war with China, but they could kind of starve them out, right? Prevent them from getting supplies. So to the north, they couldn't get supplies because they had just conquered the northern area of China. To the west, along the uh, uh, China Sea, all of those ports were closed. All you had, to the west, you had the Himalayas and Mongolia. You Mm -hmm. weren't going to bring supplies over that. So you had the Burma Road. So what did the Japanese do? Well, in March of 1943... Uh uh about five months before Edward gets there, the Japanese invade Burma and they cut off the road. Mm. No more Burma Road. Mm-hmm. We needed to keep China in the war because they were holding down a couple million Japanese troops, and we knew that next year we we're gonna launch this big invasion in the South and Central Pacific. We we're gonna start invading islands that people may have heard of, like Iwo Jima and the Marshalls and the um and the Marianas. And so we needed those troops in China. So we had yeah, to keep them keep in the war. Them busy. So they created the China-Burma-India Theater. It was run on the army by a guy named Gen- General uh, Joseph Stilwell, Vinegar Joe they called him, because he didn't suffer fools and he would, <laughs> but just say he was, he was not the kind of boss that would make you feel all warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was effective in this area and he knew the Chinese and he could speak Chinese the air force that they created at this time was called the 10th air force and its sole purpose was to deliver supplies over the hump over the hump and now my last little piece of this triumvirate of China Burma <laughs> India is the hump what is the hump the himalayan mountains are very tall tallest in the world in fact but as you go from where the where the uh, himalayas are if you look at a map as you go from india and you continue to go east into china the the himalayas start to to get a little less tall instead of being 25,000 feet or 15,000 feet. So we had to fly over that. These are 15,000 foot tall mountains. Now, what's interesting is they flew their planes at about 92 feet above sea level, and these mountains jutted up. This is called relief, not elevation the amount that the mountains jutted up was about 15,000 feet. That's huge. For those who have been to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, you see those majestic Grand Tetons jutting up from the earth. That has a relief of about half of Mm -hmm. what they had in the Himalayas. That's around 7,000 feet. So here you are. I'm I'm going somewhere with this audience. Stick with me.
0: I mean, Colorado has how many? 14,000 footers. But the difference is when you take off from Denver, you're already at 5,000 feet. Sure. I mean, it's
1: not from sea level. You're right. Exactly. And... These are planes from 1943. They're twin engines. They're not jets. They're not designed to handle- They're not pressurized. They're they're not not pressurized. (laughs) (laughs) The only oxygen is a mask. And oh, by the way, you're
0: loading them up as much as you can with stuff and people to go over the hump. And flying over mountains always has very questionable weather. Yes. So that's another big risk factor with this too. In fact, there were
1: three different large air masses- That would merge and be affected and amplified by the presence of the Himalayas. So, you had weather, you had planes from 1943, you had Japanese fighters that were shooting these planes down until about 1944, (laughs) right, which sucks. And then you have no navigational aids, meaning in a lot of places around the world at this time in the 40s, we still had these radio beacons that would send out a beam at a certain frequency, and if you picked up that beam, you could follow it back to the airport. Well, you couldn't do that in these mountains. So you just had to use old-fashioned dead reckoning type navigation. And then uh, on top of that, um, with everything else that's going on, um, you also had uh, uh, problems with getting supplies in to keep the planes properly maintained so that they wouldn't have any issues when they flew over the hump. So this was a very dangerous mission. I don't want the audience to think, well, they flew over the hump, they just put a bunch of crap in C-47s and flew it over a mountain and they just kept doing that. This is considered, the 10th Air Force is considered, to have done the first uh, truly effective, large-scale airlift in the history of human civilization. The amount of material that they would bring over the hump would not be exceeded until the Berlin airlift after World War II. So now I hope I set the stage. Why are we, first off, World War II for the United States and the Pacific started in China. Thing one, uh, we needed to keep China in a war to hold down these troops. We need to find a way to supply them. And the only way to supply them at this point in the war was to fly our aircraft over the tallest mountain range on the face of the planet mm-hmm.
0: I don't know if anyone uh th- there's the the show that's on I think it's on the weather channel uh, ice pilots yeah uh where these guys are in Alaska and it's present day and it's this uh this cargo company in Alaska that flies cargo using c forty sevens today <laughs> yeah using C-47s in very similar conditions as far as cold and bad weather that these guys did. They may be not flying over the same height of mountains as they go to Yellowknife and other places like that. But they frequently, maybe it's through editing, make it sound like these planes are just barely holding together. You I, know? I think they're probably just barely holding together. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 they're using new old stock parts yep. to keep the planes flying and stuff. But I think back then, there was still this struggle to keep the planes in the air. I mean, these were new planes back then, but at the same time, the engineering only goes so far, and you're putting them through these highly taxing situations where, you know, a lot of, let's face it, a lot of warplanes weren't built to last for, you know, a high number of flights, like bombers, for instance. They knew they had a life to them. You know, and a lot of these bombers that came back from missions that maybe flew their twenty five or thirty missions were immediately scrapped because they were just fatigued from all the 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 time in the air. Well, these planes though were carrying maximum payloads. How many times are they flying over the hump? Sometimes two or three times a day. So And for years, potentially years on end here, I don't know how long this actual airlift went. Till the end of the war in 1945.
1: So Actually past
0: the end of the war. I would be curious to know what was there, you know, maybe and maybe Ed actually played a role in this in figuring out what's the lifespan of these planes.
1: So later on in, we got other clips that we're going to talk about this, Ryan. I'm going to share some statistics with the listeners about how dangerous these missions were, what the losses were, and... The, the, the role that these statistical control units, which is what he was a part of, played in the maintenance, in increasing the maintenance and the safety and the load capacity of these airplanes. It was done through science and
0: mathematics. Man, I'm just going to stand back in, in awe. This stuff doesn't need Hollywoodization. I mean, there's so much real life drama with all this stuff, I, I lo- I mean this, this, I, I love talking about this stuff just because you don't have to embellish it. It's all so fascinating and real and, and it's authentic and, you know, to, to have to go through, um, you know, like movies, like, you know, co- current movies today that are, that take on world war II topics and they have to make it, all explosion right. and and crazy, you and know, cowboy, cowboy and stuff like that. I just don't get it. I, I would be. I think that it's more authentic hearing these stories for real as well, opposed to embellishment. You remember the uh, the one of the longest running um, shows on TV,
1: Mash, where that was all about the Korean War and all the yeah. doctors they do. You could have called another series just called The Hump, and you could have had ten years worth of material uh, talking about all the exploits on the Hump, and I'm going to share some of that with you later. I. To, to me, it was a very... This was a backwater. People, one of the problems that they faced with um, with allowing this operation to be effective is the morale. There was no places to recreate. These are horrible living conditions, and we're going to be talking about that in the next few clips. the the There, the, the, This was because the men knew that they were in a backwater. They were in an area that wasn't being written about, that people didn't know about. It was demoralizing. It kind of felt like, what are we doing here? And so... Um, that is another part of this theater that I find so fascinating, is the more you read about it, the more you're like, this is amazing. What they did was <laughs> was ev- ev- everything just as compelling as some of the other things we did, but more so because they had to do it with fewer men, with, with more broken planes, and with more operational hazards. So anyway, we're going to yeah. talk more about these later. But uh, in the next clip that we're going to roll into, we're going to start hearing what it was like on the ground when he got to the 10th Air Force in India and was working as an
0: adjutant on the general staff to help optimize air operations. And didn't they have cobras in India? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in India. Uh, they had, they had
1: cobras, they had jungle rot, they tigers. had tigers. Did oh, they have tigers? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: That'd be, I would not want to be there either. Okay, it could be a form of recreation, I guess. <laughs> This concludes episode two of the five-part Edward Patterson series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. Please join us next time for episode three, where Mr. Patterson will talk about the 20th Air Force attacking Japan from the west, as well as the logistics of supplying the B-29 raids, his living conditions, and the seeds of the geopolitical issues with Taiwan that are still in the news today.